If your Bibles aren't already open to 1 Corinthians 14, I ask that you'll open them there now. It is good to be here today, uh, a joy to be able to, to worship God together. Today I want you to join me in imagining that you are a first-time visitor to this assembly. Maybe you received a, a personal invitation, maybe you were handed a business card somewhere, maybe you saw the sign just driving by, or you ran across us on our, our Facebook page, but you decided to come see what it's all about. Maybe you have very little Bible knowledge, maybe uh, you have very little idea to what to expect in coming into this building. Um, you may have been to some other church services in the past, but you always have felt a little bit out of place. And now, even though it's outside of your comfort zone, even though you're in a room full of people that you've never met before, uh, you've decided to give it a try because you know you need God in your life. Do you see that picture? Do you have that picture in your mind? Do you see yourself in that person's shoes? What do you see when you look at this assembly? What did you see as you walked through the front door? What did you see as you wandered in and tried to find out where you were supposed to sit? What did you see as the services began, as we sung and as we prayed, as we took of the Lord's Supper? Did you have any idea what was going on? What did you see as you observed the strangers around you? and how they interacted with one another. The primary question is, what should you see? And that's the question that I want us to address today. What should visitors see within our assembly? I know many times we often emphasize how evangelism is something that needs to happen outside the four walls of our meeting place. And I think that is extremely important. Uh, we can't just wait for, for people to come in from, from the world. We need to be getting out in the community, spreading God's word, shining our lights from day to day in all our interactions. However, that doesn't mean that uh, evangelism, uh, that shining our lights should be devoid within the assembly. Certainly, if our sh lights are shining as Christians, should they not shine most brightly when we are together? Should, should, should that not be something that, that is evident among us, if our assemblies are a place, are not a place where our lights are shining, are not a place where unbelievers are going to be drawn to glorify God for what they see among us, then there is a big problem. Here in 1 Corinthians 14, the passage that Jonathan read for us, uh, we see that Paul basically asks the question, how will an unbeliever react to what they see in your assembly. Now he's speaking about a, a specific circumstance here, a specific issues that the Corinthians are struggling with, but his, his basic argument is that if you're conducting yourself in this way, they're going to think you're crazy. But if you're conducting yourself in the way that God would have you to conduct yourself, um, as we see later on, he talks about be, things being done decently and in order, then the desired reaction is for an unbeliever to fall on his knees and say, God is certainly among you. 
And also in the passage that we studied today in James 2, again, we see this precedent of a visitor coming into the assembly. We see within the scriptures uh, this example of inviting unbelievers into our assembly, considering what influence we have upon them within our assembly, and even using our assembly uh, in an evangelistic way. And the desired reaction here is not... That was fun. That was entertaining. Uh, You know, I really like those people. I'm going to come back next week. The desired reaction is God is certainly among you. It's not that we're just going to cater to, uh, you know, the fleshly appetites of the world around us to try to make our assembly something um, that uh, satisfies them. But it is that our assembly should be a place that God's presence is evident. Uh, that it is evident that God is working among us. How can we shine God's light in our assembly? That's the question that I want us to consider today as we're in the shoes of the first-time visitor. And I think there's uh, primarily uh, four things that, that we're going to look at, at least there's probably many more, but four things that, uh, four characteristics that are going to show God's presence, God's light in our midst. First of all, uh, the visitor needs to see truth among us. Consider the context here in 1 Corinthians 4. What was it that caused this unbeliever to fall on his face and proclaim God is certainly among you? When you look there in verse 24, uh, it says, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever and ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring God is certainly among you. What, what happened that caused this individual to say God is certainly among you? It says he was convicted. He was called to account. The secrets of his heart were exposed. He was re- reproved by God's word, cut to the heart. The truth of God's word is the only thing that has the, the power to accomplish that. Um, Those things are not accomplished by a nicely manicured building or or by how beautiful our singing is. That is accomplished by the truth of God's word shining through in all our teaching. Uh, It is the light of God's word, the light of truth, that is able to illuminate and expose the contents of our hearts. Consider Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. We read here, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword uh, and piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What is able to convict, what, what is able to expose the secrets of the heart, God's word is that sword. It alone has the power to penetrate the heart and to transform what is inside. The words of Grady Huggins don't have the power to do that. The, the words of Jason Eaton don't have the power to do that. You know, we, we could get up here and we could tell lots of interesting stories and, and entertaining anecdotes. Uh, and we could keep people's uh, attention. We could speak very eloquently. But at the end of the day, if the truth of God's word is not present among us, then God is not present among us. Uh, the truth of God's word has to be where our focus is. We need to be opening our Bibles and reflecting God's revelation, God's will, God's thoughts to mankind. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. 
prove that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Here we see the, the scriptures have the power to inform, to teach, to re- reprove, uh, to expose sin, uh, to help us correct that sin, and then to go on to train us to be everything that God wants us to be. And nothing of lasting spiritual value is going to be accomplished if that power is absent. If we want to claim that God is among us, then his thoughts, his will, his word, uh, his revelation must be among us. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus told his disciples, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. How are people going to know that we are Jesus' disciples? Well, one way that he says is going to be evident that we are truly his disciples or if we are abiding and continuing within his word, if we are following uh, and proclaiming what he says. So, most foundationally, if God is going to be among us, God's word needs to be among us. It needs to be the focus. It needs to be the basis of all that we teach, all that we practice, all that we do. But back in the context of 1 Corinthians 14, uh, I think there's much more than, than simply that that would indicate that God is among us. Uh, The primary focus of 1 Corinthians 14 is not the uh, evangelistic value of our assembly. Now, I think he very much makes that argument here, but that's a supporting argument to a greater focus in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The focus here is the edification and encouragement of our assemblies. Uh, and Paul only uses this argument about the evangelistic value to, to support his, his main point here. If you look in the context, verse 12 says, So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Uh, in verse 26, at the end of this section, he says, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Now, I've heard some before be a little hesitant to um, be visitor conscious in our assembly or visitor oriented in our assembly because we think, well, the assembly is for us. The assembly is so that we can be encouraged, so that we can be edified. This isn't about evangelism that happens outside the assembly, and there's some truth to that. But I think what we see from Paul here in 1 Corinthians 14 is that these are not mutually exclusive goals. It's not that if we want to be evangelistic in our assembly, then we're going to neglect edification. Or if we want to edify in our assembly, then we're going to neglect uh, shining our lights to visitors. In fact, he says that those are interdependent goals, that those two work together. And that if we want to genuinely shine our lights to those around us in uh, our assembly when we're inviting in visitors, uh, then it needs to be a place that we are genuinely accomplishing edification, that we are genuinely accomplishing encouragement uh, and spiritually building one another up. When visitors come into our assembly, they shouldn't see a bunch of people uh, who come to church just because they feel obligated to do so. 
um, that we're just here because we're, we're supposed to be and so we're going to do the things that we're supposed to do and you know they, they may not really uh, accomplish much but that's what God told us to do so that's what we're going to do anyway. Well no that's not shining our lights. That's not going to have the impact that Paul is talking about here. What, what should be seen, what God intends for his people is that when we come together that this be a time that we're focused on genuinely uplifting uh, and invigorating one another in our spiritual lives. They should see that we're not just going through the motions, but that we have purpose and passion to what we're doing. Uh, and it's not just that, well, this is what we do every week. Now, in talking about edification and accomplishing what we are intended to accomplish within the assembly, Paul gives us somewhat of a formula for edification. If you'll look in uh, verse 12 through 15, 1 Corinthians 14, Starting in verse 12, we read here in verse 12, it says, So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also also. How is edification genuinely going to be accomplished? Well, he talks here in, in their context with the spiritual gifts uh, about how speaking in tongues is not going to accomplish that goal within itself because you, your, your spirit may be praying uh, in that tongue, but your understanding, your mind is unfruitful. You don't understand what's being said. You can't be built up and encouraged by that. And so what is the formula? He says there in verse 15, the outcome then is that I will pray with the spirit and with the mind. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind. And he's not talking about the Holy Spirit there. You notice in verse 14, he talked about my spirit, my mind. What he's talking about is engaging both our spirits and our minds in every aspect of our assembly. Engaging both our heads and our hearts, our, our emotions as well as our understanding in everything that we're doing. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that often in my worship, one or both of these things are lacking. That either my, my spirit, my, my heart, or my emotions, uh, my, my mind rather, uh, are, are checked out of my acts of worship. But I, I may bow my head in prayer without truly engaging my mind in the things that are being said. I may sing a song without truly engaging my heart in the emotions that are being expressed. And yet, when we do truly engage our hearts, and we do truly engage our minds in the things that we're singing, the, the prayers that we're praying, the things that we're studying together, the, the things that we're remembering in the Lord's Supper, when we are truly engaged, both head and heart, in those things, I, I think it has a profound and visible difference. It is evident when we are engaged, when we are passionate in our worship. Um, and it's going to be evident to those around us as well. Are we accomplishing what we are setting out to accomplish within the assembly? Or are we just going through the motions because that's what we're supposed to do? If we are going to accomplish genuine edification, it's going to take some preparation and it's going to take some forethought. Consider the passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. 
Here we read, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's the primary command in this passage? Is the primary command, you better show up? Well, certainly you're not going to be able to accomplish the other parts of the command if you don't show up. Um, but the primary focus here is stimulating one another to love and good deeds, is encouraging. It's about what we are accomplishing within the assembly. And even more foundational than that, the first command here is, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good works. If we're going to accomplish the encouragement and the edification that God wants us to accomplish in the assembly, it's not just going to happen by accident. It's going to take some forethought. It's going to take some consideration. It's going to take some preparation and some planning so that our assemblies can be genuinely purposeful and passionate in the things that we are doing. How are we going to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works? What does that look like? I think, first of all, or maybe most foundationally, it's going to require some forethought and some consideration by those who are leading within the assembly. Uh, it's, it's going to mean that if, if I am leading in a prayer, that I am giving some forethought to, to what are the needs of the congregation at this point. What, what are the things that are going to be most helpful and most meaningful, most appropriate to, to pray for, for one another as we join in prayer together before the Lord? Um, and there is nothing that says that, you know, I, I pick out what songs I'm, I'm going to sing beforehand and I decide what I'm going to preach beforehand, but prayer needs to be some impromptu thing that I, I can't prepare a prayer because, well, you, you don't do that with prayers. Well, no. If we want to be conscious of, of praying a prayer that, that is going to be edifying, and in 1 Corinthians 14 we see very clearly that edification is part of prayer. It's not just a communication between God and I alone, when I'm in the assembly, I'm leading in prayer, that part of the purpose is edification, is building up one another in that prayer. I need to give some forethought to that. And when I'm leading songs, I need to pick out songs that are going to be most meaningful and helpful, make sure I understand the, the words of these songs and that other people understand the words that we're going to be singing, that maybe they, they go with what we've been studying in our Bible class, that they go with what's going to be preached about, that they are going to... to go together with one another. It's not just that I, well, I like the tune of this song and I, you know, this is one of my favorite songs. No, we want to give some forethought into what is going to most effectively accomplish encouragement and edification. When I lead in the Lord's Supper, I need to give some forethought and some, some preparation into what's going to help the brethren focus their minds on what we're doing. We, we do that week after week and it's very easy for us to slip into a just going through the motions mindset. When I get up and I lead in the Lord's Supper, my, my goal is to help us not just go through the motions. What can I say, what can I do to help us genuinely focus on what we're doing, to, to avoid um, doing this without engaging our hearts and our minds? And when I prepare to preach, uh, I, I need to, to select what topic I'm going to preach on based on what's going to be most helpful to uh, the group. Uh, you know, I... I I'm going to use myself as an example here, but, but have you ever found yourself um, knowing that you're supposed to preach and just kind of flipping through your Bible and thinking, well, I need to find something to preach on. Um, that's a good passage. I'll, I'll preach on that. 
No. Uh, what, what we see, if we're going to be effective in accomplishing our goal together, uh, we need to give some genuine thought to what's going to be most helpful, what's going to be needed. There, there's a big difference um, between those who simply have to say something and those who have something to say. And so we need to give some, some thought, some preparation, even to how we are going to present that, to be most encouraging, most edifying. Those are some ways that we can consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And, and you know, I think I, we start there by considering those who are leading in worship, but that applies to each and every one of us. What can I do? What can I do in the position that I'm in to encourage those around me? How can I show others that I am engaged in what is going on, that my heart and my spirit and my mind are truly engaged in what we're doing? Maybe I can say amen at the end of the prayer. Let them know, yes, I agree with that prayer. I was praying that prayer. Um, You know, maybe I, I can open my Bible. I can follow along. I can take notes. I can show that I'm engaged. I can prepare beforehand for Bible class so I can be engaged in that class. And I I can make comments. I can ask questions. Uh, I can sing passionately with my heart and with my mind. Make sure that I mean those words. And when I truly engage my heart in that, it's going to be evident in the way that I sing as well. How can we accomplish edification? How can we consider how to stir one another up to love and good works? We see that there really isn't this break between, well, we're going to have a visitor-focused assembly, we're going to be effective towards our visitors, or we're going to be effective in building up one another. We see that they go together, and that when we are accomplishing the purpose of our assembly, others are going to see that. Others are going to see that God is certainly among us, that we have purpose, that we have passion, that we are accomplishing what God has intended for us to accomplish within this assembly. But as we talk about uh, those things that reflect God's presence among us, if, if we simply are talking about the outward actions, if we're, we're simply talking about uh, our acts of worship, we're, we're missing the, the point. Uh, ultimately, it's about our hearts and it's about our attitudes. And one of the greatest things that is going to reflect God's presence among us is love. Look in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Here, what did Jesus tell his disciples? It says in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How are people going to know that God is certainly among us? How are people going to know that we are genuinely God's people, that we are genuinely disciples of Jesus? Well, Jesus presents the evidence to us here. Above all else, our love for one another is going to show that we are genuinely his disciples. That should be evident. Uh, in all that we do. And even in the context here of 1 Corinthians 14, as Paul is addressing all these different areas of their assembly and things that they were not doing properly, Paul still puts the emphasis on where it needs to be put. You notice here in, in chapters 12 through 14, as he's talking about these spiritual gifts, right in the middle, uh, verse, chapter 12, verse 31, he says, But earnestly desire this greater gifts, And I show you a still more excellent way. Chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, 
but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Here, Paul talks both about tongues and about prophecy. In chapter 14, he said, well, if you're just speaking in tongues, it's not going to be effective. You need to speak by way of understanding. But what does he say about both of them here? He says it doesn't matter if you're speaking in tongues. It doesn't matter if you're prophesying. It doesn't matter if you are giving all of your goods to the poor, giving your body burned. If you do not have love, it is worthless. And so if we genuinely want to show that God is among us, we need to show the love of Jesus among us. Earlier in chapter 12, he talks about this concept in the context of the body. Verse 25 and 26, he says, So that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. This type of love that we have specifically for one another is part of what it means to be a body. It's part of what it means to be a family. It's central to our identity. If we are in the body of Christ, that means, you know, if, if I'm walking in a dark room at night and I stub my toe, what, what's my body going to do? Uh, it's not going to say, well, toe, get with the program. No, my, my entire body is going to react to that. Uh, and if I eat a, a warm, delicious meal, my entire body is going to be satisfied by that. The entire body has this, this care for one another, is interconnected as part of one another's lives. Is our love for one another and our fellowship evident in the way that we interact with one another? Is that something that people can see? Jesus says it's something that people should be able to see. Do we function as a body? Do we function as a family? Or do we function as casual acquaintances, as disjointed members, uninvested attendees of the Sunday afternoon club? That's not what God's design is. Throughout the epistles, at the end of Romans, the end of 1 and 2 Corinthians, the end of Thessalonians, even in 1 Peter, time and time again, Paul and, and Peter say that we should greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, Peter says we greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, obviously, uh, e even, uh, even when we recognize that there is a difference in culture here, we, we recognize the difference between uh, first century Greco-Roman culture and, and our culture today, um, the point of this warm familial greeting is still a point that we need today, um, a point that is made multiple times throughout the scripture. Uh, it may not be appropriate in our context today for, for us to greet one another with a kiss. But we should have this warm, familial, uh, affectionate greeting towards one another. We should, in the way we interact, show that we are family. That the relationships that we share here are, are the, the most important relationships in our lives. That the spiritual bond that we have uh, is what God intends for it to be. 
And ultimately, when we think about this love that reflecting, uh, it's not just our love for one another that reflects God's presence among us. Uh, Ultimately, that love should be shown to anyone that enters our doors. Visitors need to feel that they are loved and appreciated in a way that is uncharacteristic of the world around us, something that that comes across as, as surprising to them at how much we are willing to reach out and love. Um, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 46 through 48, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God in his love does not show favoritism. Uh, God's love is not exclusive or selective or discriminating. God has shown his love to the entire world and made his salvation available through Jesus to the entire world. If God is truly among us, the same type of love that we show to our brethren should be shown to anyone that enters our doors should be shown to strangers. The same type of greeting that we would give to longtime friends, we need to give towards first-time visitors as well. Um, He says there is no distinction here in our love and our greeting towards our brothers or towards those without. Uh, And that's what we talked about today in our Bible class, James chapter 2, another example of of, uh, an unbeliever or or some visitor coming into the assembly. How how do we treat that individual? Um, And we have two examples of of the the rich man who is treated um, with honor. Uh, said, here, come sit over here. We we show value. We show appreciation to an individual. And then uh, in James' example, we see the, the poor man has said, well, you... Go over there, sit by my footstool. Uh, And and the point is not that we we need to just have equality with the two. The the point is not that, well, as as long as you treat the rich rich man poorly too, then it's okay. (laughs) No, the point is we, we need to give the same honor, the same appreciation, the same value to anyone who comes into our assembly. Uh... I know sometimes I, I find myself thinking, well, you know, we, we don't want to be over the top, though. We, we, we don't want to make somebody uncomfortable with how friendly we are. Well, no, I, I think we do want to be over the top. I think that's exactly what we want to be. I, I think we want to be friendly and loving in a way that stands out against the cultural norms of our society. Something that, that somebody comes away and thinks, that is weird. <laughs> You know, that, that, that they are so loving to people that they don't even know. That needs to be our goal. That needs to be our attitude. And I think, you know, sometimes when it is insincere, when it is artificial, when it's put on, um, then, yeah, it might be very awkward and uncomfortable. But when it's genuine, when that, that is genuinely how I feel about that person, and that is genuinely the message that I want to send to them, that I love them, that I care about them, that I value them, and that I am thrilled that they are here, uh, then that's going to come out, and that's going to make a difference. It's going to reflect God's attitude, God's character, God's love, uh, both in our attitude towards one another as well as our attitude towards anyone 
who enters these doors, anyone that we interact with for that matter. But fourthly, we can't talk about the second greatest command uh, of loving our neighbor as ourselves without talking about the first. Just as much as God's people must be those who love their neighbor as themselves, God's people need to be those who love God with all their heart, all their soul, and all their mind. This too should be evident in all that we do, uh, and most certainly it should be evident within our worship assemblies. That love for God should be expressed in a genuine devotion and reverence. Worship should not be some casual and thoughtless routine. It should be a sincere expression of love and honor to God. We see throughout the Old Testament, uh, God rebukes his people for lacking this devotion, lacking this reverence in their worship for him. Uh, consider Isaiah 29 and verse 13, a passage that Jesus quotes within the Gospels. Here we read, this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Here they were just going through the motions. Now they were doing the right things. Well, this is what God told us we're supposed to do, so we're going to do it. But their hearts were not in it. They didn't have the devotion, the genuine honor to God. And it showed in the way that they worshipped him. Jesus, in quoting this passage, uh, says that their worship was vain or worthless. We can't simply say all the right things or go through all the right motions uh, if they are not a genuine expression of reverence and devotion from our hearts. It is pointless. It is worthless. God is not honored. God is not among us. I want you to turn your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1, here we see God giving an example of this worthless worship that we were just talking about. Of a worship that lacked the heart, that lacked the devotion and reverence. Um, and Malachi addresses some very tangible ways that that reverence and that devotion was lacking. Let's start out by reading verse 6 through 8 together. Malachi 1, starting in verse 6. God says, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. What comparison does Malachi make here? He makes a comparison between the type of honor that would be shown to an earthly father, to an earthly ruler, a governor, and the type of honor that was being showed to God. Now, I think all of us would agree that God would be deserving of much greater honor and much greater respect than any earthly ruler, any earthly figure. And yet, their actions did not reflect that type of reverence. 
They were giving God their leftovers. Instead of offering the firstling of their flock an unblemished male, they were getting the, the leftovers, those that they didn't want anyway, um, and worshiping God in that way. In verse 13, we see their inward attitude about this. Verse 13, he says, You also say, My, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so that you bring your offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? Is that our attitude towards worship? My, how tiresome. You know, well, God said that we need to worship him, so I'm going to be there on Sunday. And God said that we need to do this and we need to do that, so I'll, I'll do it. But, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to getting out so we can go to supper. I know there, there have been times in the past um, when we were in St. Louis, there were some times that we had uh, a snow day uh, on Sunday uh, that nobody was able to get out. And I found even myself at times thinking, snow day, this is great. <laughs> what, what am I missing out on? I'm missing out on, on the most important part of my week. How dare we have that attitude? No, that should be what we desire above all else, to join with our brethren, to worship God. We should long for that. And when that is not our attitude, and when that is reflected in the way that we treat the assembly, in the way that we treat our worship, God says in verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates so that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Because if that's your attitude, you might as well just close the doors. Don't come. Don't worship me like that. Don't insult me by giving me your leftovers. Later on in verse 14, God says, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name is feared among the nations. Are we worshiping God in a way that is worthy of the great king that he is? Or are we giving God our leftovers? What would God say about our worship? Are we genuinely giving him our best? Is the honor we express to him greater than we would show to an earthly ruler, to an employer, to our family members or father, or is it less? I'm afraid sometimes that we try to worship God with a mangy old goat because we think, well, you know, it's not about the outward things. Uh, God, God cares about the heart. Um, you know, what, what if these priests had said that? Well, it's, it's not about the outward things. I can worship God with the mangy old goat. My, my heart's in the right place. Well, if our heart is in the right place, it's going to show in the type of honor that we give to God. Yes, God cares about our hearts. But if our hearts are genuinely devoted to him, that reverence is going to be expressed in how we worship him and how we treat the assembly, uh, and how we treat him throughout every moment of our lives. 
Let me ask some questions here um, that I think will be challenging, I know, to me, be challenging to us as we consider the type of reverence that we show to God. And, we, and as we compare that, as God did, with the type of honor that we show even to those in earthly positions. Am I more dedicated to getting my schoolwork done or preparing for my Bible class lesson? Am I more devoted to getting to work on time or to the assembly on time? Do I spend more time preparing for my work presentation or for the sermons that I preach? Am I more willing to spend money on updating my house or on making our church building a welcoming and inviting place to worship? Am I more willing to spend money on making a well-designed and attractive advertisement for my community function that I'm hosting or for the evangelistic events that we are organizing as a congregation? Do the way we worship and function as a congregation genuinely reflect the type of importance that God and his work should have in our lives? When people see the type of time, effort, and resources that we invest into the Lord's work, will they think that we are serving the creator of the universe or some cheap imitation? But then the type of time, the type of effort, the type of resources, the type of attention and focus that we give to our worship, to our creator, needs to reflect the reverence and the honor that he deserves. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, it says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Brethren, the God that we serve is the God who created the universe. The God that we serve is the God who sent down the waters of the flood, who sent the ten plagues, the God who parted the Red Sea, who caused Mount Sinai to quake with fire and smoke and his presence, the God who caused the walls of Jericho to fall, who judged his people in captivity, who brought them back at the appointed time. He is the God who can heal the sick, the lame, and the blind. He is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. That is the God that we do serve. That is the God that we are worshiping, and he deserves our reverence. He is a great king. And any time that we come to him in prayer and worship and service, we are coming before the throne of the king of the universe. And the attitude that we reflect needs to show that. Those on the outside looking in need to see the importance that God has to us. That we are honoring him as he truly is the creator of the universe. That God, the creator of the universe, is among us. As a visitor today, what do you see among us? Do you see the truth of God's word? Do you see genuine edification and encouragement? Do you see love towards one another? and towards all those without? Do you see devotion and reverence worthy of the great king? I'll tell you, I, I see much of that among us, and I am very encouraged by what I see among us. But there is no question that we can improve, that I can improve. There is no question that we can better reflect God's presence among us than we do 
maybe today as you've heard God's word, God's word has convicted you. Maybe you recognize that you are not serving the king of the universe the way that he deserves. Maybe you've never devoted your life to that great king. He deserves everything that you have to offer him. And despite our unworthiness, he was willing to send his own son to die so that we could be his children, so that we could have an eternal relationship with him. Do you want that hope that he is offering you? Are you willing to surrender your life to him? If we can help you in any way, get your life right with the Lord, if you need to confess some sin before these brethren and ask for their prayers, uh, if you need to commit your life to the Lord for the first time, we ask that you'll let us know at this time.